thanks for stopping by. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, we're going to be having another in-person gathering in July 10th at Center Yoga. Wonderful, wonderful center, very progressive, like-minded people. And uh, it's going to be the same deal as the last few. So uh, look for the information which will go up on the Dharma Punks NYC if you'd like to join us in person in July. And also, of course, we have our in-person retreat from September 1st to the 5th at Garrison Institute, where we've been doing retreats for, oh, I don't know, probably 10 years now. And a wonderful, huge, beautiful, lovely center, easy to get to from New York City. Just jump on the Metro North and you're there in about an hour and 10 minutes. And lovely hiking trails, great food, and the wonderful Kathy Cherry and J-Mo, Jessica Moray, will be teaching, and I'll be teaching as well. So hopefully you'll consider joining us. I'm a Buddhist pastor. Everything I do is not based on charging for anything. It's all donations. So if you would like to support my work, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC or the PayPal buttons on the Dharma Punks NYC website. And that's all the announcements I have. And tonight I am talking about Bright Livelihood which is one of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path being the Buddha's outlining of the spiritual way to live one's life. And I'm not going to go over the Eightfold Path tonight. I'm just going to go over why right livelihood or finding work that creates and instills a sense of uh, interconnectedness with the world and altruism is so beneficial and why it is fundamental to having a spiritual life and ways we can go about it even when uh, work that is entirely altruistic might not be available. So anyway, let's jump in. Um, I like to start with contrasting happiness with fulfillment because they're often confused. But in fact, they denote entirely different states of being, entirely different neurotransmitters, underlying, underlying perspectives. Happiness is a temporary state. It's associated with the celebratory emotions of joy and uh, positive sensations. It is also associated with a sense of invulnerability, that everything is uh, perfect right now. Activities that enhance um, an individual's personal survival, as in what makes me feel safer or advantageous in the world, will stimulate the oldest dopamine reward systems in the nucleus accumbens. And these are reward systems that go back all the way previous our species. Um, 
It's forward projecting dopamine. It's based on conditional activities that create a sense of tribal advantage. So I am doing very well when I uh, am stimulating dopamine. Activities that hijack the ancient dopamine reward system are activities like shopping, eating sweet food, stumbling into a financial windfall, uh flirting with somebody who's attractive uh gambling uh various other sometimes risky behaviors the key is that it's all about acquisition it's very conditional meaning that happiness is not something that's always available it requires conditions to be met and the real crux of the issue is that dopamine specifically dopamine one and dopamine two surges pass very 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 quickly by the time we get the new iphone home it's lost its shine by the time people get uh, a lot of positive feedback on something they post or a lot of likes on a selfie on instagram or whatever the buoyancy, the sense everything's great, lasts maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then we're right back where we started. So dopamine is a rush, but it's not lasting. And it's always about activities that hijack the earliest sense of I'm doing better than other people, or I'm uh, have accrued some survival tool that enhances my um, my security, my personal well-being. So there's nothing uh, or very little at times uh, activating that activates happiness that overlaps with fulfillment. Fulfillment stems from engaging in regular pro-tribal activity. So it's not about things that make my life better it's things that enhance my bonds or connections or a feeling of being worth while to other people um that i'm playing a positive role in the lives of others that i can see and witness that my actions are somehow helpful this is a far less conditional state of being because whereas happiness or dopamine reward systems require getting something that is not always readily available, that creates a sense of I'm doing better than the rest or that I've really enhanced my survival outlook. The only thing we need for fulfillment is in some way to reach out and connect with someone in a beneficial way. And so that's far less requiring conditions to go right. It's far more readily available if we can just uh, find opportunities to connect beneficially with others. And in so doing, it increases serotonin production as opposed to dopamine. And serotonin, of course, is a neurotransmitter associated not only with stable moods and greater calm and a greater degree of sustained interest in others, but it's far more lasting or sustained. Whereas 
serotonin, I mean, dopamine can raise and lower in 20 or 30 minutes. Serotonin is slow to raise, but it sustains for a lot longer. If somebody goes off of a dopaminergic boost, it, very quickly the benefits will go down. But if somebody takes something that raises their serotonin levels, they'll still have buoyancy for quite a while before their serotonin levels begin to drop. Of course, I'm talking about antidepressants and stuff like that. So one thing that's important to note is happiness is utterly incompatible with negative emotions. So when you're happy, you are not sad or frightened or uh, uh, dejected or angry or lonely. All of those emotions are obliterated by the extreme, you know, the secretion of dopamine and the state of, of happiness. On the other hand, um, if you are fulfilled, you can uh be sad at the same time fulfillment is not about being happy it's about having a sustained stable mood where we don't fluctuate too quickly the mood stays at a reliable generally calm neutral focused state so if you're chasing happiness and you want to get rid of immediately get rid of a sense of anger or loneliness or frustration, then you're, what you're going to do is shop or, or eat lots of food or maybe turn on the television. But if you're looking for fulfillment in life, you have to find a way to play a beneficial role in other people's life or find work that in some way is um, associated with growth and with um, uh, developing skills. An 80-year Harvard study, not it literally over the course of 80 years, Harvard did a study of adult development, and they found that the driving forces of a fulfilled life beyond one's physical health, that's a something that is definitely fundamental but in addition to our physical health is the quality of our relationships and whether we engage in activities that help others or create a sense of or of growth in our skills so in other words there's a vital role that some form of altruistic behaviors play in fact there was there's been so many countless hundreds if not thousands of studies associated with Martin Seligman, Jonathan Haidt, um, and all the positive psychologists, uh, Csikszentmihalyi and Abraham Maslow, that showed how absolutely fundamental altruistic behaviors are towards lasting fulfillment and having the sense of a meaningful life. Altruistic behaviors positively stimulate the social hub of the brain, which uh, Ma what is it? Matthew Lieberman, uh, I think that's his name, Lieberman in, uh, showed is the anterior cingulate cortex, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. And other studies show that 
it is profoundly stimulating of oxytocin and serotonin. So altruistic behaviors regulate our moods. They over time make us feel much better in a more lasting way than chasing happiness. And it reduces the pain induced activation of the insula. The insula is the uh, region of the brain that reads your body for you and collates your body into an emotional state. So if you want to be fulfilled in life, if you want to experience less pain, if you want to have more stable moods, then altruism is definitely the answer. And the reason that we're rewarded for altruism, or at least not causing harm to others, is because we're a tribal species. We are a species of pack animals. Our entire survival advantage was based on safety and numbers. We didn't survive because we run particularly fast. We don't have wings to fly away. We don't have shells to protect us from uh, uh, most attacks. So what we rely on is connecting, bonding with others for security. And so over the course of evolution, the brain was wired in such a way that those who had a greater inclination to bond and take care of others were those that survived and those that didn't take care of others didn't survive so over the course of evolution we wound up with deeply social in fact the brain is period stop full sentence a social organ it's profoundly the frontal lobes and the cingulate and so many other regions are just wired to make sure we bond and connect with others well. So there's been brain imaging studies, not just of all the positive emotions, but there's also been studies of the negative consequences of not acting altruistic, of, of acting selfishly. And these are um studies of guilt embarrassment and shame and some of the famous neuropsychologists who've done this are people like michael lewis and Hideko takahashi uh i'm sure i'm pronouncing his name wrong and i'm probably getting forgotten his first name correctly but takahashi is definitely one of the big wigs in studying guilt embarrassment and shame and guilt too is grounded in our evolutionary wiring to bond and connect the, it helps us also establish and maintain social relationships. It enhances bonds by motivating us to treat our partners well and to avoid interpersonal transgressions. So if uh, there, just as we're rewarded for beneficial acts, we are in essence uh, punished in multiple ways when we fail to consider others in our actions. Well, many emotional networks are activated by the amygdala. It's interesting that guilt and embarrassment also employ networks that enable taking on the perspectives of others, as we mentioned, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, but also the temporal lobes in the dorsal medial and superior axes, axes of the brain, so superior temporal. So there's so many regions that light up when we fail to, in some way, uh, consider others. In fact, there's now a rich and 
uh, growing field that studies what's called moral injury. More moral injury is that under stressful circumstances, we may perpetuate or fail to prevent, or we may even witness stuff that uh, events that contradict our innate pro-tribal wiring. If we see or if we fail to take action enough, there we are, it's considered we begin to feel guilty of what's called acts of omission. Acts of omission are failing to act in ways that are consistent with not only the deep wiring that's pro-tribal, but the care we've seen others perform for others. So if we fail to live up to the care that we've seen other people perform, uh, not the worst of people, but the best of people, then it can result in regret for our ethical inaction. And the long-term results have been shown to be depression and a sense of emptiness. So lots of people live lives where they think they're not causing really that much harm. Uh, maybe they spend their entire lives just uh, making money, uh, paying for their family, but not, uh, and which is hard, certainly, to raise a family. And But they don't ultimately take uh, or engage in altruistic activities. And over time, when they look back on their lives, there's a sense of regret or a lack of sense of uh, richness. I know because I did work in both uh, volunteering in hospice, but also uh, if you read the studies of what people talk about as they face death, one of the most common subjects is people return to the good that they've done to others. So all of this brings me to right livelihood. Uh, it's, again, a branch of the Eightfold Path, and it's a branch that's probably one of the most overlooked in the teachings, because, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons why uh, Buddhist teachers very often don't like to talk about it. One, because it, it requires us to ask difficult questions about the nature of our work. And most Buddhist teachers just want to keep the subject light and don't want to rock the boat too much. So they don't want to give the difficult kind of talk about the fact that it's not enough simply to meditate and to not talk harmfully to others, but that there's an even greater requirement in the spiritual life to investigate the nature of our work, to embark on any path towards fulfillment, I'd say we must consider whether or not either our work or the stuff we do on a daily basis has ethical outcomes. If we don't, then even though we might attain these wonderful states of peacefulness and tranquility, and we might feel really, really uh, calm from our, our concentration meditations and our mindfulness meditations, but ultimately for me, if we don't investigate what we do, there's a, um, a kind of hypocrisy 
that you know if we're we're not looking at the fact that for example that our work is uh polluting the world engaging in child uh violating child labor laws is profiteering off of people uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so in 2001 um 9-11 happened which i witnessed and it was a uh, how do you put it a grim affair to see and uh i was at the time working in advertising and uh why was i doing that well uh, I graduated uh, in psychology, and I was grew up in a Buddhist family, so my great interests in college were writing about and studying Buddhist psychology, and after that I continued, but I was done with academics after college, and I really wanted just to not sit in classrooms and just basically, well, at the time, drink and just live life uh, without having to do any more um, getting myself deep into debt for academic costs. So I spent a lot of time being in different things and I stumbled into advertising, which felt very, at the time, somewhat creative. Uh, I could come in whenever I wanted and it wasn't for me very hard to do. It was actually pretty easy. Um, and I didn't think it was causing that much harm in the world, making, you know, advertisements. Um, and whenever there was a client that was dodgy, I would simply not work for them. So I was asked a couple of times to, to work on advertisements for the army or DuPont. And I said no. And I thought, well, I'm a pretty moral guy. But when 9-11 happened, and I went to try to volunteer and be of some kind of uh, service to um, others. Uh, what I found was they didn't have any need at the time for people who were in advertising. And I tried to explain that I had a lot of experience in both Buddhism and uh, psychology, but they said, well, you actually have to be uh, credentialed. So, I went back to work and I just no longer could do it anymore. The whatever the delusion that I was somehow engaging in something that was um, not harmful, that was not a fruitless endeavor had completely been pulled away. And I realized that I was working in a field that in no way prepared me or allowed me to be of any help when people around me were suffering. And so I made the decision uh, that I was going to leave that field. Now, I didn't just walk in and quit. I don't think that that's uh, a solution that one would have made any sense. I very quickly knew that I wanted to go into uh, a Buddhist counseling related field. So I started going back studying and I got credentialed as a Buddhist pastor. And the process took about, you know, I, I was teaching about 2005 and I finally left advertising pretty much for good a few years later. And so it was a process, but it started with a realization that I can't 
spend my life working in a job that in no way really deeply benefits others, that in fact is simply uh, nicely creative and giving me a good paycheck. Uh, now, I did know uh, that there was the other possibility of volunteerism, but by the time I finished with the workday, I really didn't have all the energy necessary to really play a vital role for other people. So I'm not saying that other people who work in advertising or the financial industry or whatever, who also do violent volunteerism, that's fine for me. I didn't have the uh, the re the the physical resources at the end of the day. So I decided that I had to transition out. And that was a process, but it was fueled by this recognition that if I spent my life in that field, that when I look back on my life, I wasn't going to feel very good. Already, I felt a sense of a deep regret and, a, and almost a sense of embarrassment right after 9-11 when I went to volunteer that they wouldn't let me. So. That was the spur. And so the Buddha set the bar pretty low for right livelihood. I mean, uh, he simply said, avoid businesses and weapons. Don't enslave other human beings. I hope you're not doing that. Killing animals, um, uh, passing along intoxicants or poisons. So there's a big debate in Buddhist circles whether being a bartender or serving alcohol is okay. Most uh, Buddhist uh, pastors, teachers, I know myself included, don't have this whole moralizing thing. But most people I know who do work as bartenders or people who serve alcohol do realize that it's not a part of their job that they're particularly proud of. And they try to maximize the benefit of the benefits of their job. So also any activity that requires us to be dishonest completely annuls any spiritual progress. And if you believe in karma, which I do certainly from a psychological perspective, karma being that positive actions create a better mind state. And if we engage in activities that require dishonesty, then we completely undermine any spiritual growth. So it's very important to never engage in an activity where we have to lie to others, get over, or in some way present as if we're giving them more benefits than we actually are. Lack of positive endeavors, lack of really doing stuff that matters to others, over time caps the amount of serotonin and that will secrete it again over time can lead to depressive and ultimately completely unfulfilled empty states it's not a good choice employment that fails to instill a sense that we're not playing a positive role in some way leads it's been shown to far higher turnover and burnout rates so even though for instance nonprofits that pay less that very often people have to work harder and longer, and you think those jobs would be the ones that have far greater burnout or turnover, but actually studies show that work that 
is far more remunerative, far less often stressful, still has extremely high turnover rates because ultimately people just don't feel deeply rewarded by what they're doing. The Dharma, it should be said, goes against the flow of the world, as the Buddha said. Um, the Buddha used this analogy. If you put if the Dharma was a bowl and you put it in a river, it would go against the stream. It would go against the flow. And the contrast is greater to, without any doubt, in late stage American capitalism, our country systemically deprives us of safety nets such as health care and guaranteed housing that other Western advanced democracies offers. Our par parents are burdened with unparalleled costs and lack of support. If you look at, I was talking with somebody who's an American but had a child in Germany, and he was just talking about how so it was so much easier raising his child in Germany rather than the US because there was so many social supports, education was free, uh, all healthcare was free, everything, they had uh, centers for children to play, all, so much of the stress that was burdening parents was taken off of parents. And our students are mired in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Housing in this country is rapidly becoming unaffordable. So all of the pressures of late stage capitalism pretty much dictate that individuals prioritize remuneration, 401k, jobs that provide healthcare, which entails specialized tech. And I have to say that when I became a Buddhist pastor and I made the decision not to charge for anything that I do, including the counseling, it was fairly, even though it was something that I believed was the ultimate spiritual uh, most profoundly spiritual uh, goal for me, it was terrifying because, you know, everybody is, we all worry, like, how are we going to pay the rent? How are we going to get health care? And that's why the process took so long, the seven years of transitioning, because I had to make sure that you know, I could still literally afford to live before I totally made the transition. So obviously, we each have to make these choices um, uh, in ways that are appropriate to the responsibilities we have to others and ourselves. Um, and I should note that even professions that seem admirable can be tangled or, you know, really caught up, I should say, in harmful consequences. I know that I, being a, a counselor, a Buddhist pastor, I know so many therapists. I get to connect with them, talk with them. I've even very often, very often counseled many therapists. And they have to struggle with the fact that on the one hand, they're being enormously beneficial to others. Yet at the same time, to work at a clinic, they have to, there's financial consequences. The cost of their services can be an enormous burden to the people they're trying to help. And some therapists, thankfully, I never have to do this, but some, some therapists have to turn away clients that can't pay for their services. And for me, that's a tragedy. So even fields that 
you know, doctors, for example, who help save lives, yet at the same time, their services can bankrupt people. And so uh, I, for me, um, right livelihood at, demands that we look honestly at the sum total um, outcomes or what really is involved in our work. Capitalism as a way of infecting every interaction with profit incentives, you know, viewing others as a source of income. I've actually seen, and this was a tragedy for me, I saw teachers that, uh, Buddhist teachers that I admired, who clearly gave a lot more attention to practitioners that were big donors to their big centers than people who really couldn't afford to give anything. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to never look ever at you know, donations that I got because I never wanted ever to have my work affected by it. And so if this sounds like I'm making a pitch, I'm not, all of you are welcome. None of you have to donate anything. But for me, it was it was a tragedy seeing how even the Buddhist landscape has been subtly uh, affected by capitalism and by chasing the almighty dollar. Uh, today, also, any means of work or livelihood is knotted into or just completely caught up in a global manufacturing system and and no matter what we do you, you know the from the food we eat to the clothes we buy if they're new rather than recycled or reused um you know impacts the lives of countless others every food we eat is generally picked by uh, somebody who's making below minimum wage. Um, clothing designers, for example, who, you know, get out of a nice design school like uh, uh, FIT, and all they want to do is making, you know, a livelihood from something they've always wanted to do, and they get a job and somebody allows them to design clothes, and they might not even thing to check if that company is profiting from child labor. And they might not even be ever told that the apparel industry after oil is the second most polluting industry in the planet. So it's become so much harder to really truly understand the consequences of what we do for a living. It requires us to do a lot of research. Um, if we shut our eyes, if we don't ask, we're, if we try to get rid of our unease, over time, we will basically feel empty, we'll feel a sense of, uh, over time, certainly any um, of the benefits from our work, any of the self-esteem will be compromised. Of course, it's not possible for everyone to become a Buddhist pastor. <laughs> uh, it was quite an endeavor. So uh, I would offer that um, it's most worthwhile to make an effort to really look into 
any companies we consider working for, businesses we consider working for, people we consider engaging in business with, challenging, investigating, you know, simple questions like do they minimize greenhouse gas emissions or are they linked to child uh, labor or, and there's lists by Amnesty International, which I support, um, which have lists of companies that are deeply embedded in so many tech companies that are big, big, big hires of people these days still use child labor in other countries. Efforts to discern like what are the consequences or outcomes of our work is I think vital to any um, spiritual practice. And if people want to accuse me of being woke, well, fine. I have no problem with that. Uh, I think that uh, there's so many people in the capitalist landscape who look away that if we want to live up to the uh, a spiritual life, one that is more than just meditating or having nice images of the Buddha around our house. It requires not only um, engaging with people in our lives without harm and engaging in skillful speech, but also asking difficult questions about our work. Um, we can't run away from how deeply embedded we are in the world. Um, even if we think what we're doing is not that harmful, if we don't really look into the long-term consequences, there's still a sense of, I think, uh, hypocrisy. So I've always had to just deeply investigate that. And I encourage just any degree of investigating uh, what it is that we're spending our time, how we make our living, what we spend our days doing, uh, putting into practice the Buddhist wisdom that all human beings arise completely independence of the world, not separate, but independence of the world. And everything we do affects others. Oh boy, so that's, I think, enough on that subject. I hope that there was something in there worth contemplating or you can forget about it, but uh, let's meditate and we can even maybe find a way to integrate right livelihood into our meditation. So closing the eyes and just bringing attention inwards and finding first the sensations of support in your life right now, meaning the contact with your chair or the couch or the floor yeah, if you want to lie down, the, the ground, the yoga mat or the bed that's supporting your back. And just feel that sense of bondedness 
reliance upon the world, connection to it. The sensations of contact, contact are also one of the most efficient ways to allow us to disconnect from the kind of self-oriented thought that not only justifies actions, that, but also becomes obsessive thinking, intrusive thoughts, catastrophizing thoughts, contact sensations, when we're having panic attacks, allow us to ground and orient towards the present, contact sensations when we're trying to establish calm and meditation, provide a reliable, unconditionally available uh, anchor for our attention. You can feel your hands connecting while resting on legs or on wherever they're connecting. If there's any clothes weighing heavily on you, feel that. And um, try to just... Be with, stay with, keep in mind these sensations. And then moving on to find any sensation in the body that feels really pleasant, easeful. Where's the calmest space internally? and rest your attention on that. And let's see if we can use the breath to spread the ease. So for instance, if you felt a sense of calmness in the palms of your hand or behind your eyes, or maybe in the belly or in the heart center, to see if you can Imagine each breath warming and giving energy to that sense of ease. And then with each exhalation, imagine that you could spread the ease further through your body.
And so finally, bringing your awareness to the breath in your body. Just finding the place we're breathing in and or out to most apparent. Or if you prefer, and you would like to widen your awareness, instead you could land your attention on the sounds arising and passing in your environment where you are. Don't reach out to try to grasp sounds. Don't reach out and try to find the breath. Just, just ask, how do I know if I'm breathing in or out? If you're working with sounds, don't try to visualize what causes the sounds. All that does is engage the uh, regions of the brain that right now we're trying to give a rest to, the conceptualizing, labeling parts at this moment. Let's just try to be with, not interfere with, not resist not grab onto, just cultivate with our experience a relationship, a relationship based on just being present with our experience, not trying to change our experience, not trying to add on to our experience, not judging our experience, just being with our experience, that's it. Just sit comfortably, know what you're hearing or know if you're breathing in or out. And if you get, your mind starts to wander, just know, know that and bring it back to the sounds around you or cultivating the most rewarding, soothing, long, full, slow breathing you can.
So before we move out of the meditation, I'd like to just offer two reflections and you can play with these and see if they in any way help uh, provide some degree of insight. So the first reflection is imagine that everything that you do in your work, the way you support yourself or the activities that make up the bulk of your life were visible to all the people you hold most dear and respect so that every element of your work could be seen by all people that you really care about people whose opinions matter to you so imagine they could sit and just get a look at everything that our livelihood entails and if this were the case would you feel a sense of pride that everything was visible including the outcomes of our work both immediate and long-range outcomes would we mostly feel a sense of comfort with that? Although maybe a couple of things we would be uncomfortable with, maybe wish that we could change or tweak a little bit. Or would we feel very, or not so comfortable, not so happy if everybody could see all the different elements of our daily work life. Even if there's no harm being done, if there be a sense of kind of embarrassment that maybe people we respect would think that we're kind of just not being as mindful or as uh, could play a greater role of benefit for others. Now, this is all just, it's not, there's no universal or given sense of ethics, it's just what makes you feel comfortable. And if there's any element of your work that makes you feel uncomfortable, how could we go about addressing that? What could we do? How could we challenge the parts of our work that don't feel, that don't sit as well? And then 
Secondly, just visualize yourself looking back on your life. Whenever that time comes when one takes stock. And as you would look back and maybe even tell the story of what you did with your life, how would, looking back on this point of your life right now, how would you feel? How would this future you feel? Would they feel really great, happy, void? Would they feel mostly very, uh, a sense of comfort and esteem for what we did or, and maybe just some elements that they, we would have done differently. And if so, just challenge yourself to look at those things and keep them as a, as a next step, a room for spiritual practice. So let's just very gently taking our time, return to engaging with each other. I hope that any of those, that the meditation or any of those reflections were in some way worthwhile uh, or that the talk was.